Let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks. Give you thanks for your word. And as we explore it today, Lord, we ask that you open our eyes. Open our eyes so that we may see you for who you are. Open our ears that we may hear what you are saying through your word. Help us, O Lord, not to presume or to assume based on what we know in the world right now, but to hear you with fresh ears and see you with fresh eyes. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, good morning, my name is Ian. Once again, I'm one of the pastors here at Wesley Methodist Church. It hasn't been long, it's been uh, coming out four or five months that I've been here at Wesley and I'm so super, super happy that I've been reappointed to Wesley again on the next term. Um, but this Sunday is Trinity Theological College Sunday. If you don't know what that is, that is the seminary that's in Singapore that uh, most of our Methodist pastors, or if not all of our Methodist pastors, go through in order to be trained to become pastors. Um, I studied at Trinity Theological College from 2008 to 2011, and so uh, hot top, uh, well, hot take on this. I studied at the same time, I was the same batch as Pastor Raymond and Pastor Clement. Okay, so all three of us were the same batch going through TTC. Of course, Pastor Raymond was up, really up there. I think he was valedictorian at the end, <laughs> scoring A's for everything. Um, but. TDC was something that I didn't really take very, very seriously way back when. And as a result, I kind of played my way through it being a lot younger at that point in time. And today, I just wanted to share with you all two things that I didn't know and wish I had known going into theological studies. And also, these are the two reasons why I ended up going to Regent College to study even more in the last two years before coming back to Wesley Methodist Church. Um, and... In order to get at these two things, let me tell us a common parable that many of you perhaps are familiar with. It's a common parable told about four blind men and an elephant. Have you heard about this? Yeah, four blind men and an elephant. And so each blind man touches and feels a different part of the elephant to make sense of what is in front of them. So one feels the trunk and says, oh, I think this is a snake. So it, it feels like a snake, so it, it must be a snake. Another reaches up and feels the ears and says, oh, this thing is a fan because it can be waved around and, and it blows some kind of wind in my direction. And the third one puts his arms around the leg and says, oh, it's a pillar. And then the last finds the tail and says, it's a rope. Familiar with this parable? The common parable that is told nowadays. And the point of the parable in the way that it's commonly used is that we are all trying to understand reality. And we come with our different deficient perspectives, but with an aspect of truth to each of them. And it has also been used to say that this is what all the different religions look like. All limited, but each having something to bring to the table regarding God. Now, I would like to take a different angle with this parable. Because this parable encapsulates the two things that I wish I had known going into theological studies. First, is that we can't assume that we already know what God is like. Just because a blind man feels the trunk and thinks it's a snake, it does not mean the elephant is a snake. And the second thing is that we can't know him just by thinking or feeling. We can't know him just by thinking or feeling. Okay? And I believe scripture has something to say about this. And so today we're going to take some time exploring Exodus 32. 
where Israel goes and grows impatient waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. And so they decide to make a golden calf for themselves. And with that, I ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word. Now stand. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image on a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now just for our recollection, we're coming around in the story of Exodus in where the last 10 chapters before this passage are largely about God giving Moses the law and the instructions for the tabernacle on top of Mount Sinai. But now there is a change in camera angle. It shifts and we are suddenly brought down to the mountain, uh, down from the mountain to see what is happening with the Israelites. And what we see is that rather than waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain with God's law to be revealed to them, they grow impatient and start to draw their own conclusions about what God is like. Or let me put it this way. Rather than receiving God's self-revelation that is coming down with Moses, they attempt to reach up to make sense of God themselves. Let me say that again. Rather than receive God's self-revelation that is coming down with Moses, they attempt to reach up to make sense of God themselves. And this is the sense that we get when the, from the way that the author frames the narrative you follow along with me. Verse 1a, we are told that Moses was delayed in coming down. Then in verse 7, after all that has happened, we are told that God says to Moses, Go down. And immediately within those boundaries, we see in verse 1b, the people say to Aaron, Get up. And in verse 6, we are told that they get up to revel. And these frame the act of making the golden calf and their worship of it. And this is something that is common in, in, in Hebrew narrative. All right? the, the authors, they are literary geniuses and they find a way to kind of sneak in things for you to, to pay attention to if you, you really are interested. 
But here's the point that the, the narrator is trying to, to make, the author is trying to make. In order to know God, his nature needs to be revealed down to God's people. But here the people go up against that. In one sense, reaching up to make sense of him when they try to grope around in the dark. And then that's where things go very wrong. See, if we don't let God speak on his own terms through his word, then we are bound to infer who he is and what he is like. And that brings us on a road headed toward disaster. So the question we now ask is, how do the people infer what they think God is like? Well, there are two ways in which they do this. The first way we see in verse 1, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now just to recall, much earlier on in chapter 20, the people see the thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai just as Moses was about to go and meet with God. And then they say to him, You go talk to God, but don't let him talk to us. If not, we will die. There's a sense of suspicion over what God will do to them if they get too close to Him. So here's something I, I want uh, to show us that's quite fascinating about all of this. Uh, archaeologists have actually dug up uh, an Assyrian prayer on tablets that uh, dated to around 750 BC, and they have titled it a prayer to an unknown God. And this is what that prayer looks like. The prayer goes like this, The sin I have committed, I know not. The misdeed which I have committed, I know not. The iniquity that I have done, I know not. The offense which I have committed, I know not. The transgression I have done, I know not. The God in the wrath of his heart have visited me. The goddess have become angry with me and has grievously stricken me. The known or unknown God has straightened me. The known or unknown goddess has brought affliction upon me. You start to see that at that point in time in the area within the, the Middle East, all the people were looking around at all these various different gods and they actually don't really know what the gods are like. And so they said, oh, you know, I'm, we're not sure if you, I, if I, I, maybe I stepped on this boundary wrongly and that's why this God is punishing me right now. There's a huge big question mark as to what the gods are like, what their preferences are and which God that they, they have offended. And this was a sense that I think the Israelites brought with them as they were waiting for Moses to come down from the mountain and they realized that he was not coming down as soon as they would have expected. And so they come to this conclusion and they say, we do not know what has become of him. In other words, they perceived that Yahweh was perhaps just an unpredictable God, just like every other God out there, and that might smite them for no reason whatsoever. So that's the first thing that they do when they infer what God is like. But they also infer what is God, God is like in verse 4, when we are told that he took the gold, or Aaron took the gold from them, he formed it in a mold and cast an image of a calf. So we ask, why a golden calf? And very interestingly, this golden calf that you see up here is actually, you can find it in the, the um, museum in Israel. And what archaeologists have found out is that these were representations of the Canaanite god Baal. And Baal was the god of the Canaanites, but he was also the god of the storm. Right? 
And remember, when Israel looked at Mount Sinai, they saw thunder, they saw lightning, they saw fire, they, they saw smoke. And their quick conclusion is that Yahweh must be like that God. Because we've heard about this storm God that the Canaanites worship. And so maybe Yahweh is just like that. And so they start to form this and start to worship it. See, friends, when we fail to listen to God, to hear the way He wants to describe Himself, we are bound to infer things about Him based on our existing categories. Israel was looking around at the world around them and the other people who, who worship different gods, and they were saying, maybe Yahweh is like that, or maybe Yahweh is like, like that thing over there. But the one thing that they should have been doing was to wait for God to reveal Himself to them. Now here's a fascinating thing that happens in the text next. In verse 4b, we're told, And they, that is the people, said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now question, how many gods or how many idols does Aaron make? How many idols does Aaron make? You guys following with me here? How many? One. It's just one. We're not told any, anything more than that. But here, they curiously say, these are your gods, plural. It's very clear in the, in the Hebrew. It's certainly plural. And this is what I think the author is trying to say. Why, why would he say that even though they've made one god, they have actually are talking about many gods? So another literary device for the author to say that because Israel does not wait for God's self-revelation, they don't just end up with one other God. Through their inference, through looking at the world around them and saying, maybe it's like that, maybe it's like that, maybe it's like that, they end up with a pantheon of gods. Or as my professor in, in Regent College would put, he says this, in biblical thinking, the abandonment of the living God is not followed by atheism, but by polytheism. In biblical thinking, the abandonment of the living God is not followed by atheism, but polytheism. You with me? If we don't hear what God is trying to say to us and we try and grope around in the dark and try and make sense of Him ourselves, we are not going to end up with any revelation of Him. We're going to end up with many, many gods. But here's the scariest part, I think, about the text. Verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. You guys catch that? Aaron doesn't say, Tomorrow shall be a festival to Baal, or to Dagon, or to Maduk, or to Asherah. He says, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the, to the Lord, to Yahweh. And then, we're told, in verse 6, they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being and the people sat to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Now, everything here is a feature of Orthodox worship of Yahweh. Just read Le Leviticus, your favorite book of the Bible, right? Um, there are burnt offerings and sacrifices of well-being and it was commonplace for them to eat and drink along with the priests at the tabernacle. This was, this was part of Orthodox Israelite worship. 
Uh, now, you, some of you may question, what does it mean for they, they rose up to revel? Well, this, it, the, the translation of the word is debated, but at base value, the root of the, the word is the verb to laugh. It's the, the word that we get for Isaac. Okay? What's certain is that they're having a good time. In other words, as far as the people were concerned, they were worshipping Yahweh. It is possible to think that we are worshipping God, having all the outward appearances of orthodox Christian worship, even enjoying the worship when we are actually participating in idol worship. You guys hearing me correctly here? It is possible to think that we are coming in to worship God and having the appearance of what seems to be orthodox Christian worship, but in actuality, we are worshiping an idol. That is what the text is telling us. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that's a scary idea for me. It's tremendously scary. Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. The much greater and more pervasive problem in ancient Israel is not the refusal to speak, to speak of Yahweh. That is not a practical readiness to dismiss Yahweh as a factor in life, but the temptation to engage in wrong speech about Yahweh, which amounts to idolatry. In that ancient community, as even now, idolatry, wrong speech about God rather than atheism, Refusal to speak about God is the more compelling and dangerous issue. To speak wrongly about Yahweh, to bear false witness, to provide an inadequate construal of Yahweh is to treat Yahweh as though Yahweh were one of the important, irrelevant gods and idols that were all around Israel. See, Israel's problem here isn't that they are worshipping other gods, but they are worshipping Yahweh, thinking He must be like the other gods. In other words, let me put it down into one sentence. Idolatry is anything we believe about God that does not come from Him. Idolatry is anything we believe about God that does not come from Him. And to use the parable we began with, Israel is exactly like the blind men, fumbling around, forming their own conclusions about what the elephant is like. But they don't realize that the elephant wants to open their eyes so that they can see it for themselves. So again, the two things that I wanted to share with you about theological studies. We can't assume we already know what God is like based on our own categories. Number two, we can't know Him just by thinking or feeling. We have to be told. We have to, it has to be revealed to us. It has to come down from Him. Now what I want to suggest is that it's not just Israel that, that does all of this, right? We do it too. Rather than listening to who God says He is, we infer who He is based on ideas that come from the world around us and we inadvertently say to one another, even in church, these are your gods. So can I have your permission right now to get real with us? Can I talk about three gods that I think we worship even here in Western Methodist Church? Well, I'm only asking our politeness. I'm still going to tell you guys. Here are the three. Okay, the first one. 
The God who helps those who help themselves. Where does this God come from? Well, it comes from the mouth of my tutor when I was in secondary school. Because she wanted me to come back for tuition on Sunday mornings and I told her, I can't, I've got youth group, I've got to go to church. And she said to me, God helps those who help themselves. And she was a very well-meaning Christian lady, I might add, Methodist as well. But this is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Where does this idea come from? Where does this idea come from? Where have we inferred it from that God helps those who help themselves? Well, it comes from ancient Greek proverbial wisdom. It comes from Sophocles in 409 BC when he says, Heaven never helps the men who will not act. Or Euripides who says, Try first thyself and after that call in God. For to the worker, God himself lends aid. This is where this idea finds its roots. Not in scripture, but in Greek Proverbs. Why is this not biblical? For somehow, we have a distorted perspective regarding works and grace. We often think that we need to do something in order to warrant God's grace. But the biblical perspective is clear. God does not give His law to us so that He might save us. God saves His people and then gives them the law. You with me, church? God saves His people so that we may obey His law. Yes, I know some of you are thinking, oh, but doesn't God say, say, if you obey me, then I give you these blessings, and if you do not, then there will be curses. Yes, but in the grand narrative of the Bible, God always saves His people first. Then He gives them the instructions and the way in which they should live. In other words, He doesn't say, you need to do these things in order for me to come up and save you. He saves us first. Now, another way I want to put it to us is that there are two kinds of covenants that can be made in the Old Testament. The first one is between equal parties. You can read this in Second Kings 5, where Hiram and Solomon come together and they said, or Hiram says, I've got lumber for you, and Solomon says, I've got wheat and oil for you. And essentially, this is a covenant between two equal parties that says, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. The second kind of covenant that you can have in the Old Testament is between unequal parties, between a suzerain and a vassal, or between a king and a servant. And it always, these kind of uh, covenants between unequal parties always begins with what the king has already done for the subject, deliver them, save them. And then after that, the subject has, after the subject is shown to be able to bring nothing to the table in order to warrant the relationship with the king, then, and only then, is he given the laws and stipulations by which he is to obey. You with me? Two kinds of covenants. In other words, if you believe in the God who helps those who help themselves, then you don't have a Lord. You have a back-scratched buddy. If you believe in the God who helps those who help themselves, you don't have a Lord. You don't have a king. You have a back scratch buddy. Now, what effect has, does this have on us? It has built us into a self 
Help Society. There's so many self-help books out there right now. Power of Positive Thinking, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, 48 Laws of Power, 12 Rules for Life. Everything rests on the ingenuity and resourcefulness of human beings. And the last place that we, you and I will ever go to is to God. We have this idea that, that nobody else is going to do it, so you and I will need to do it. Everything rests on our shoulders. And it has resulted in crippling anxiety for us as a human race. Especially in Singapore. You know this to be true. We always place everything on our own shoulders because if no one else does it, then everything falls to pieces. We're perpetually worried about the 101 balls that we need to juggle. And you say, we, we can't let this drop. It's all dependent on us. In short, it has resulted in our inability to rest, to take our hands off of our own lives and say, God, I cannot do this. God, please take charge. It has resulted in our inability to instinctively turn to God before we try anything ourselves. I know this is very much true for me. I'm aware of the time, so let's move on to the second one. The God who is only approached in praise. The God who is only approached in praise. I want you to hear me clearly here. Years ago, when we started the Saturday service here at Wesley Methodist Church, we agreed, and the, the, the guys who were kind of putting together the service and what we should be doing, we, we agreed that the first song must always be fast, upbeat, and praise-oriented. And I've since repented of that position. Why? Because I think as a result, we have lost the ability to mourn and lament, especially when we look around at the world around us. We see wars, so many wars in the world around us. We see the death of the innocent. Now, please hear me right, okay? Don't get me wrong. Starting with the song of praise is certainly not wrong in any way. It helps us in some ways turn our eyes from our, our, our struggles and our problems to God. What is wrong is when we think that is the only way we can approach God. Why? Where does this come from? Where have we inferred this idea that we can only come to God in praise? I would like to suggest that it is from Stoicism and Buddhism. Why? Because those two schools of thought believe that the best life you can live is one that is unaffected by the external factors in the world around you. It prizes the ability to be emotionally unaffected by suffering or tragedy. And so by removing ourselves, by detaching ourselves from the world, we can eliminate suffering and uh, the emotional turmoil that we all go through. Just focus on the good stuff in some ways. Can be the oversimplification, but you get the idea, right? And that is not what God is like. Why? Um, a colleague of mine, the brilliant Methodist pastor, said, "She said it's this is overrealized eschatology." And I said, "Wow, what theological term is that?" So, overrealized eschatology is emphasizing the future victory without weeping 
over the present. It is saying He is risen when Jesus still hangs on the cross. It is saying He has conquered the grave when we look at the tomb and there's no hint of life to be found. It's an inability to reckon with present injustices we see in the world. It's being too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It's an inability to hear half of the Psalms that cry out again and again, How long, O Lord? How many are my foes? My tears have been my food day and night. Awake, O Lord. Rouse yourself. Why are you sleeping? Why do you hide yourself? Why do you cast us off forever? Forget not the afflicted. Hear my pleas for mercy, O Lord. It's an inability to hear Jesus' voice as He hangs on the cross and exclaims, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ignores Jesus' tears as He weeps with Mary and Martha, even though in a short moment He is going to raise Lazarus from the grave. What effect does the worship of the God who is only approached in praise have on us? Have we ever wondered why we are struggling so much with mental illness nowadays? Why mental health is such a big issue right now? It's because we've been unable to talk about and express what is wrong in the world, what is wrong with we when we see things around us. We are unable to, to articulate and verbalize the emotions that are deep down burning within us saying this is not right. And we've disposed all of that and our ability to do it and, and, and the God who offers that to us by believing in the God who is only approached in praise. Third, the God who takes our souls to heaven and discards our bodies. Where does this come from? Where have we inferred this from? This comes from Plato. This comes from Stoic dualism where human souls have somehow descended to the material realm but are destined to return to the immaterial realm. That is to say that you and I at core value are just a soul, this immaterial thing that has been brought down to earth to live a physical life but then after that just goes on to live in immateriality. That is what dualism is about. Spirit good, body bad. Why is this not biblical? Because Jesus didn't really speak about that at all, did he? In fact, this is the way that Jesus taught us to pray. God, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, the grand scheme of things that Jesus is trying to say to us is not for us to escape to an immaterial realm that you and I might be thinking about, but for his kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven. It's also not biblical because it doesn't jive with the resurrection. Why Jesus had to rise from the dead. And in the Apostles' Creed, we recite, I believe in the resurrection of the body. It's a bodily resurrection. And we're told from the very beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and we are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth at the end of all things where God says, Behold, I make all things new. In other words, you and I, my friends, are headed for a trajectory where you and I will have physical bodies in the new heavens and new earth. 
That is the God that we worship. Now what effect does worshipping the God who takes our souls to heaven and discards our bodies have on us? What effect does it have on us as human beings? It has resulted in a disregard for God's good earth because the material things do not matter. It has resulted in the idea that of transgenderism. That is, who I truly am is this spirit or soul that is inside of me and not my physical body. My physical body is secondary. It's resulted in the, 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 this idea of transhumanism. What is stopping us like, from uploading our consciousness to a cybernetic body if all that we are is our consciousness? All that we are is our soul. We do this partly through the living uh, through our, of our devices in some ways, right? The things that, that promise hyper-connectivity but has left us feeling more lonely than ever before. Are we listening to God's Word as His revelation to us? Or are we inferring what He's like based on the popular ideas of the world around us? Are we worshipping these three gods or even more? Certainly more. So once again, the three gods that I think that we need to stop worshipping and we need to smash here. The God who helps those who help themselves. The God who is only approached in praise. The God who takes our souls to heaven but discards our bodies. Wesley, we need to stop worshipping these idols. Because we have inferred them from the world around us. And it has not been the way that God has revealed Himself to us. Because the good news says to us that God helps those who cannot help themselves. In Mark's Gospel, when the Pharisees ask, why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answers, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is those who are able to like, throw everything in his feet and say, God, I've got nothing to bring to the table. That is precisely those that Jesus calls to worship him. But secondly, the good news is that scripture tells us that we can question God, we can shout at him, we can pour out our woes before him because he can take it. This week, can I, can I share personally just for a moment, and we're going to close soon, but this week has been extremely emotionally rending time for me personally. Because last Sunday, you know, all know that we were supposed to have um, Joseph Chen come and, and speak. And for many of you, perhaps you, we've lost someone who is a great um, man of God, but was a great speaker. But for me, I've, I've lost a confidant. I've lost the man who introduced my wife to me. And as we were at his wake and funeral this week, I was talking to one of the other guys that, that, that Joe had such an immense effect on in his life. And the guy said to me, you know, Pastor Ian, I, I, can't, I can't give up my grief right now. I can't. And I said to him, it's okay. I don't think you're meant to. Not at this point. Hold on to it. 
And he said, I, I don't know why everyone's telling me, you know, so it's okay. God has a plan. God, God will make all things right in the end. You know, we will, we'll see him again. I, I know all those things, but it's not helping me. I said, I know it's not helping me either. For now, all we can do is weep and cry and know that we can turn to a God who says, bring it to me, shout at me, cry at me, question me. How can you do this, God? How could you let this happen? Because He can bear it, and we can't. But thirdly, the good news is that the bodily resurrection means I will be able to hug and have meals with the people I love once again. One thing I remember most about Joe was that whenever I saw him, he would immediately hug me. And the other thing is that meeting with Joe always meant a meal. Always meant him cooking for us, or if he couldn't just, well, he would buy the best thing he knew in order to have a meal with us. And I know the great news is that at the end of time, when I see him in the resurrection, I will be able to hug him once again. I will be able to sit down and have a meal with him again. That is the great hope that we have. That is the God that we worship. Not these gods. So Wesley, have we worshipped the right God? Have we listened? Have we understood His revelation to us? Or are we simply inferring and worshipping a golden calf? The good news is so much better than all these things. The good news says to us that there is no one else like the God that we worship. Bible is emphatic about this. There is no one else like Him to stop comparing Him to other gods. Let's pray. Lord, we repent. We repent of all the ways in which we have tried to make sense of you by touching, by feeling, by the categories that we've gotten from the world around us. Because that is not the way in which you want us to know you. You have spoken your word to us to reveal yourself to us. But more than that, your word became flesh so that when we look at Jesus, we know exactly what you look like, Lord. And so we turn our hearts, we turn our eyes, we turn our ears and everything away from all these other gods and ask, oh Lord, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see you for who you truly are. As we pray, in Jesus' name, Amen.